0: Okay, happy Mother's Day. I don't know if my mom's here today or not. Maybe the next service, maybe not. <laughs> Sorry, but we don't have a Mother's Day text today. We have David and David and Goliath. <laughs> Perfect Father's Day text, but you know, you're at crossroads, so... Um, 1 Samuel 17 is where we are. If you have a Bible like mine, this is found on page 227. First sermon I ever preached. Take a guess. David and Goliath. Eighth grade, Byron Center uh, Christian Junior Elementary School. Uh, Talking to all my peers. Love this uh, story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um... Here's the question I want to ask right at the outset. What do we do with this story? Why is this story here? What does it mean for us today? Because here's the thing that I want to resist this morning. The temptation is to read a story like this and get all inspired by David and conquering the giants because... We all have our giants, and David conquered his giants, so let's go out there. In fact, you know I could probably go all coach mode on you right now and and act like we're in the locker room, because I actually use this story with my eighth grade football players when I need to, when we're the little guys playing the big guys. It does work. (laughs) (laughs) But here's what would happen if we went that route today. Many of you could be inspired at first. I could maybe even work you into a frenzy. But then you'd get out there, face your giant, and your giant remains. And maybe even over time, you, you, your giant becomes a little bit more nastier and uglier and hurtful. And then what? Then you'll start saying, Well, what's wrong? Like, why is this cancer still here? Or why do I remain in this loveless marriage? Or why do my kids continue to go off the deep end? Or why do I keep struggling with this ugly addiction? Is, is something wrong with me? Do I not have enough faith? Or maybe there's something wrong with God's word, that, that, that God's promises um, aren't, aren't really for us. Or maybe there's something wrong with God himself. Like, God, where are you? I'm not going this route today. Because the Bible doesn't want to be read this way. The Bible is not a book of virtues showing us all these virtuous people who are to emulate. The Bible is a story. The Bible is here first and foremost to teach us about God, about who God is, about what God is doing and how much God loves the world and what God is doing to save and redeem it. Because God is the only hero of the story. And when we start with God and the book being about God, yes, it will eventually circle around to us. It doesn't leave us in this passive state. We're not just spectators watching this story. He invites us in to participate, but we have to start with God because that's what this book is about. It's about him. So let's find our place in the David and Goliath story. Uh, First, we need to know where we are in the biblical story, and and God is, in 1 Samuel, reintroducing us to this concept of king. And I highlight reintroduce because he has already introduced us to king in another part of the Bible. Where? Does anybody know? Genesis. When God makes the world, Adam and Eve are the world's first kings god says to adam and eve i want you to rule my world and i want you to subdue it subdue literally means to beat it into shape in fact dan mike and i were discussing this this week um as westerners we're so infatuated with perfection and we project this on creation just assuming that god created a perfect world i'm not saying that god didn't create a perfect world but the, but the word that, that the Bible uses to describe the wor- world that God created is the wor- word good. In Hebrew, it's tov. And God says, it was tov, it was tov, it was good. And, and, and at the end of it, he says, it was tov, tov. It was really good. This good world that God makes still needs to be ruled and subdued. And as good as the world is, There's still a snake lurking. There is. And so what God does is when he makes the world, he says to Adam and Eve, here's my world, enjoy it, cultivate it, steward it, rule it, subdue it, but do it for my glory and reflect that glory into all creation. This garden I'm placing you in, make the whole world a garden. Now we know the story. The tragedy of the garden is that rather than uh, Adam and Eve Being under God and ruling for God, they want to be God. They want to call the shots. They want to be in control. And in their rebellion, not only did the world lose the garden, but the world no longer had a king. And God's beautiful creation fell back into chaos, animals kill animals, brother kills brothers, thorns, thistles, violence, wars, disease, cancer, abuse, exploitation, and creation groans waiting for another human being to come for humans to get their act together. For a new Adam who will come and rule in justice. And in the wreckage of this failure, God gives this stunning promise in Genesis 3 verse 15. He says to you, from you, Eve, will come a seed, a son, a king, who's going to make it all right. And this seed, this son, this king, will crush the head of the serpent. And now we come to First Samuel. And, and, and we see that God's people are groaning for a king, just like our world continues to groan for a king. The prophet Samuel, he scolds them, not so much that they ask for a king, but their reason for wanting a king. Uh, he, he, he says, you know, you guys just say all the other nations have kings. Why can't we have our king? We want to be just like them. We want a king who will, will lead us into battle and fight our battles for us. And so God does what God oftentimes does. You want meat? I'll give you meat, he says to his people. He gives us over to our desires. He, he gives them the kind of king that they want. He gives them a king like all the other nations. He gives them Saul who on appearances is physically stunning. He's a foot taller than everybody else. He's the son of wealth and prestige. Saul is a king after the people's heart. In fact, at Saul's coronation ceremony, Samuel says to them, here is the king that you have chosen, the king that you have asked for, the king that reflects your heart. And I hear everybody today complaining about our options for president. Have you ever stopped to think, and this is a quote from Randy Heckman himself, that the people before us are no more than the reflection of who we are and what we've become? And that's Saul. And so, of course, Saul is going to fail as king, but then God says, now I I, I have found a man after my own heart, someone who reflects me. And when we hear God say this about someone, we ought to listen and look at the person he's talking about. And the first two things that we learn about David in 1 Samuel 16, we learn that he's the youngest. And we learn that that Hebrew word for youngest, it's a word that means the least and the smallest. That fits into God's kind of king. Because throughout scripture, when God chooses someone, it's that. And the second thing we learn about David is that he's a shepherd Because God's concept, the biblical concept of leadership, and namely that of a king, is shepherd. And there are so many places where I could take you in the scriptures that just speak to this. But Ezekiel 34, when God finally looks at the leaders of the land through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, Say to them, The Lord says to you, Woe to the shepherds, you leaders of my flock. You feed yourselves instead of the flock. You eat the best food, wear the finest clothes, but let your flock starve. You haven't taken care of the weak, nor tended the sick, nor bound up the broken bones, nor gone gone after those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you've ruled them with force and cruelty. And then God says, I'll come as a shepherd. And this is really the reason... Why leadership is about being a shepherd, because God is first a shepherd. Um, I I love what Jacob says at the end of his life. In fact, I think we sung it this morning in one of our songs. In Genesis 48, verse 15, when he sits before all of his sons to bless him, he says, May the God, the God of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, the God who has shepherded me all my life, even to this day, May he wonderfully bless you, boys. I love that. Could you say that today? I mean, this is what uh, David is, is, is saying in Psalm 23. I mean, Psalm 23 is so at the heart of this man after God's own heart. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. And, and what we need to hear David really saying is the Lord is, is my king. And, and everything thereafter in Psalm 23 then is David describing how his king kings him. And when Jesus then shows up in the New Testament and says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying more than he's just a shepherd. He's saying, I am the good king. And as the good king, my sheep know me by name and I know them. They, they know my voice and they follow me. And as the good king, I lay down my life for my sheep. And this is where I'd love to take every single one of you to Israel just so you could see a shepherd with sheep. Every time I see it, it literally moves me to the core because it teaches me so much about who God is. And because of what I am, it reminds me of what I am supposed to be. God is a shepherd. And you, and, and you see just this, this thing of beauty and intimacy between the shepherd with his sheep. And the, sheep, the shepherd, yes, does know his sheep by name. Not that he names them all, but it's deeper than that. He knows them. He knows the strengths and weaknesses of each sheep. He knows the kind of day each sheep is is having, whether they're tired or or, or not tired, if they're thirsty or hungry. He knows the sheep. And the way that a shepherd leads the sheep is he simply walks in front of the sheep. And, and, and with his voice, uh, the sheep follow because they know the shepherd's voice. And it's only the shepherd's voice will they follow that voice. And so here's David, a man after God's own heart. He's God's choice for king. A king that reflects his heart. And now we come to this story of David versus Goliath. And when you read it, you could say this is just as much a story about David versus Saul because the two are, are, are so in the story and contrasted with each other. It's, it, it's God's choice versus the people's choice. This story also should really not be a story of David and Goliath, but it really should be a story about Saul versus Goliath because Not only is Saul Israel's Goliath a foot taller than everybody, he's the only one, the text says, who has a spear, but Saul is the king. And as the shepherd of God's flock, it's Saul's responsibility to do something about Goliath. In fact, let's go to our text now. Wow, we haven't even read it, have we? Okay, let's stand and read it. I got into that introduction too much. I'm going to start with verse 31. Because this is part two. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul went for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able. You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, probably a teenager. He has been a warrior since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. I'm a shepherd, Saul. And when a lion or a bear come and, and, and carry off his sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, and I struck it, and I killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because today he has defied. The word there in Hebrew means shamed. He has shamed the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine And then Saul says something very interesting to David. Go, and the Lord will be with you. You may be seated. In fact, I think David is being somewhat sarcastic with Saul. There's so much going on in these verses that we just read. First, the smallest guy on the hill is David, And he, in fact, refers to himself in the text we just read as a slave. And yet he's the one who's willing to pounce Goliath. But the biggest and tallest guy, the king, is paralyzed with fear. How can this be? And I want you to hear the subtle sarcasm of David to Saul in what we just read. It's almost as if David is saying to Saul, hey, Saul, you know, as as a shepherd, when a lion or a bear threatens my flock, I go out and I kill it. Saul, what about you? You are shepherd of God's people, and there's a bear down there. What are you going to do about it? Be the good king. The good king lays his life down for the sheep. But now look at what Saul says in 38. We didn't read this. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his, on his head. In fact, a verse I, I, I should have read just for some context. Uh, 1 Samuel thirteen twenty-two says, There was not a single sword or spear in the entire Israelite army except for Saul and Jonathan's. Only Saul and Jonathan have sword and spear. And Saul is a man who is leading with his sword and spear. And I want us to see what a big deal this is to the author. Look at verse 45. This is the start of David's great speech to Goliath. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty in his reputation and his power. Look at verse uh, 47. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear, says David, that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. Look at verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without sword in hand. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine, and he took hold of the Philistine's sword, and he drew it from the sheath, and he killed him. You live by the sword. You die by the sword. See, a shepherd never leads by sword and spear. Never. And what we see here in this text is how far Saul has drifted. Yes, he is the king, but he is no longer a shepherd. He has become Goliath. And his only hope for David and for himself is to become Goliath-like. But before you pounce on Saul for this, I want you to empath- kind of have some empathy towards him because two times in this story, Goliath is described as a champion. Now, this word in Hebrew for champion is a very difficult word to translate. What it, what it literally means is the one who fills in the space or stands in the gap. Two times Goliath is described as that, the one who stands in the space or or, or fills the gap. Now that totally fits the story because you have this perfect symmetry in the way that it's all described. On one hill you have the Israelite army and then the valley in between and then up on the other hill You have the Philistine army, and Goliath is the one who every single day fills that space between these two armies. He stands in that gap, and he defies the armies of the Lord. He shames them. He curses their God. What Goliath really represents is worldly perfection. Perfection. And see, now we're, we're, we're talking about those gaps again because we learned two weeks ago that with Saul that he's this very insecure person, that there's this huge gap uh, that, that he senses inside between what he's called to be as king and what he knows himself to actually be. He feels like he's down here, but he's called to be way up here, and there's this huge gap in his life creating fear and insecurity. That's Saul. And now we see how Saul has gone the worldly route to fill in that gap. He's gone the Goliath route. This is how Saul fills the gap. Saul fills the gap by attempting to become like Goliath. uh, To stand in that gap, to place himself in that gap with sword and spear. And see, the more that we try to fill the gap this way by inserting ourselves, by striving to become Goliath-like, the more at the end of the day we're just going to be paralyzed with fear. And in the end we're going to just be very insecure people. Because at the end of the day, we know self really is never going to cut it. And here's the sad thing. Because Saul is not just a person, but because he's a king, and the king is a shepherd, and the sheep follow the shepherd, the sheep become like their shepherd, you have a whole army of men who have become just like its shepherd. And they too are paralyzed with fear. But again, I don't want to beat up on Saul. Because all of us today feel this gap. We we, we know this gap. And we're all tempted to fill that gap between what we're called to be, expected to be, but what we actually know ourselves to be. We're tempted to fill that with ourselves. And then as we do that, this Goliath just... this this standard of perfection uh, is thrust before us as the thing that we are to overcome or become at the same time. I have a daughter who's an eighth grader. And I knew, knew this as a youth pastor, but it gets really personal now when you start to have your own daughter. This Goliath Standard of perfection of what a girl ought to look like. That we've thrust before all of our ladies. That standard that's way up here. But ladies feel way down here. How do you deal with that? Or this, this standard of, of success and, and, and prosperity that, that, that has been thrust before us. That this Goliath thing that we're supposed to all become. But we feel down here. In the church. Same thing. This, this, this Goliath. This Are you a spiritual giant or not? And if you're not, what's wrong with you? And we have this standard that's way up here we feel down here now verse 39 look at verse 39 David fastened on Saul's sword over his tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them David actually tries to tries Saul's stuff on he he takes the sword he takes the spear he 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 takes his armor but he quickly says that ain't me bro I just keep reading. It doesn't quite read like that, but it's close. But in other words, David resists this temptation. He shuns the world's definition of strength and power and might because David knows who he is and he 's not going to try to fake becoming something he 's not in fact, if he does that day i 'm confident if he goes out there with sword and spear dressed in, in saul 's stuff, trying to be all goliath like it 's done he 's a dead man. In like fact, David woke up that day, and he don't don 't think he 's like i 'm mm, tired of being a shepherd with these these few puny sheep out in this Uh, barren wilderness. Uh, I want to be a hero. I want to take on a giant today. No, that's not what's going on. His dad sends him. And he's only there because his dad sends him. But when he gets to the battle scene, he's horrified. He's not horrified by Goliath. He's horrified at the fact that his own brothers, his own countrymen are paralyzed with fear because of Goliath. How is it that someone can look at the same giant and you can have a whole army, including the king, in an utter state of fear and terror. And you can have the smallest guy on the hill looking at that same giant like, I'll take him. How how, how can you have someone who's struggling with the same cancer? And just being paralyzed and wrecked and debilitated with fear. But someone else is just like, this hurts. This is painful. But God is in control. Or or two people lose a job and one falls apart and, and, and one is just... Why are some of you afraid today and some of you aren't? Why are you, some of you really insecure today and some of you aren't? I'm just asking that question right now. But what I want us to see now is look at verse 40. Then David took his staff, his shepherd's staff, in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream and he put them In his shepherd's pouch. And with his shepherd's sling. He approached the Philistine. David will fight as a shepherd. Because it's who David is. He isn't going to fake trying to become something he isn't. He isn't out to prove to the world that he's Goliath like. In fact he knows in his heart that the battle isn't about him. It's It's about God. He says it. The battle is the Lord so that the whole world will know that there's a God. This battle is not to show how great David is. This battle for David is to show the world how great his God is. And see, this is why I think Some of us today are stuck in fear, why we're stuck in insecurity, why we're stuck in worry, because it's still all about you. It's all about you proving to the world, proving to yourself, proving to God that you are Goliath-like. Someone came up to me two weeks ago when I talked about this big gap that we all feel. And he just had to tell me, he said, Rod, you still just don't get it. You're, you're not down here. You're, you're actually up here. And I walked away with two questions. First of all, why does this person f- feel the need so badly to be up here? And also, why does he feel the need for me to be up here? I am perfectly content to be a sinner. Saved by the grace of God. I am. And I know that God meets me and he meets you and he meets us in our place of weakness and smallness and even in our sinfulness when we're looking up to him. When we trust him. And not ourselves. Because the battle is not mine. The battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. And God chooses the poor. God chooses the weak. God chooses the the small. And you and I, we will never experience God's power perfected in our life. If we're trying to be Goliath-like. Because God's power is perfected in weakness. you know what today you may be a a head taller you may have a Goliath like appearance you may have Goliath like riches Goliath like fame Goliath like spirituality but in the end if it's all about you and you keep insisting that it's about your beauty your fame your performance your righteousness you will end up being like Saul you will and on the outside you may look very Goliath like to the world but on the inside I know you're full of fear and insecurity. I love when I can go on an Israel trip with people that I know, like Faith and Ink, and they, they, we've done life long enough together where she knows my favorite song. She said, Rod, one time, I know your favorite hymn. What's that, Faith? Nothing in these hands I bring. <laughs> Simply to the cross I cling. I love that song. i got to preach that song almost to my heart in some form every. Single day. Look at verses 42 and 43. He looked David over, this is Goliath, and saw that he was little more than a boy, (laughs) glowing with health and handsome. And Goliath hated him. He said to David, Am I just a dog that you come to me with a shepherd's staff? Are you kidding me? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh to the birds of the air and to the wild animals. Goliath can hardly believe it. He, 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 he can hardly believe it. This, this little shepherd boy coming out with his shepherd sting, stick, um, as, as my professor said about Goliath, he said, Goliath this is this sophisticated Greek special forces commando. Uh, this is a Navy SEAL. So what got David down the hill today to face that giant? It's not that David loved war. He went to war because he loved God. And what David saw was a man blaspheming his God. And he saw his entire Israelite army convinced that God was impotent to do anything about this Goliath. And David wouldn't stand for it. Because he loved God too much. And he loved the glory of his God. So David, really, at the end of the day, was too passionate for God and his glory to not do anything but fight this giant. Does that push you into battles? Does that push you into tough places? Not because you love tough, not because you have to win, not because you have to show yourself off, but because you love God and you love his name and his reputation and you want his glory to be spread to the world. I mean, David, one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible is, is, is this speech. He, he approaches Goliath and he says, You come at me with sword and spear, but today I come against you in the name of the Lord, the Almighty. And on this day, Yahweh will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down. I'm going to crush your head so that the whole world will know that there's a God. And it's not by sword and spear. Because the battle is the Lord's. That's what got David down the hill. And the next words, those two words, may be the most inspiring words in the Bible. It says, and David ran. <laughs> he ran. And he runs as as, as as God's king. He kills Goliath. He crushes his head. And I want us to see something here. How does the author describe Goliath? He goes into great detail, but the detail that sticks out to me, he says his armor was like scales. Hint, hint. The snake. And then he gives us all these sixes to describe his armor. Uh, he gives us two descriptions about Parts of his equipment that both have six. And then there are six descriptions. Six is the number for man. It's the number of incompleteness. It's the number also for evil. This isn't just a six. This is a 666. And 666 is the Antichrist. The anti-the Lord's anointed. And what just happened in the previous chapter? God anointed his king. And just like in creation, whenever there is the Lord's anointed, you can expect that snake to come slithering to take him out. And I think all that you see in Goliath and, and, and what he uh, produces, this this fear, this terror, um, this defiance, which, which is bringing shame. Uh, this is what the snake does. This is a powerful picture, I think, of our world today. We, we still are dealing with this Goliath-like snake. He's paralyzing so many people with fear. He, he's causing them to feel great shame, where they feel helpless to do anything, utterly incapable of saving themselves. And yet here's the good news of the Bible, and this is why the story is so important, is that the seed of Eve, the promised son, the Lord's anointed, sent by his father, will come to the battle lines. He's going to stand in that awesome gap. He's going to fill that space. He's going to stand between us and the enemy. And he's going to take the snake on, and as Genesis 3 verse 15 says, and he's going to crush his head. And there's a reason why when this story of, of David and Goliath, uh, when, when the word uh, spread that all of a sudden the, si- the towns are filled with the la- ladies dancing and singing and shouting. God's anointed king is here. And he crushed the snake's head. But we know the rest of this story. As good as David is, the problem with David is that David, while he's called to be a part of God's solution, to be God's king, to fix a broken world, he's also part of the problem because just like the first Adam, David too will eat the forbidden fruit. Only leaving us like longing, then what king is it? And is there a king? And in the fullness of time, God sends the world his king and like david he he comes and he and he runs to the battle line and he and he crushes the serpent's head not with sword and spear but he actually won by losing he came to the battle to fall on the sword so you and i could be spared the sword because the good shepherd the good king lays his life down for his sheep and the almighty became weakness and the richest became the poorest And he came to bring salvation through suffering and resurrection through his death because God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the powerful. That's how it works with God. So why are you so insistent today on being so Goliath-like, especially in your faith and in your Christianity? Why are you so insistent on being the hero Let's talk about the giants in your life just to end here. How are you dealing with them right now? Every single one of us has them. We will not conquer the giants by being the hero. We conquer the giants by having the hero and trusting the hero because there's only one hero. Christ is the hero to the whole story. He's the champion. He's the king. Behold your king. It's his life. It's his performance. It's his righteousness. He lived a life we could never live. He died the death that we deserve to die. He's the one who stood in the gap. He owns the gap. So that when we come to this king lay our life down before this king, bow to this king, surrender to this king. When we follow this king, listen to me, we will become like him. And I want us to know what this means, that Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. He wasn't just buried for you, he was buried as you. He wasn't just raised for you, he was raised as you. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father, not just for you, but as you, because when you are in him, your life is hidden in him. And that means that his life is your life. His victory is your victory. The Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he fills the gaps. Which is why we don't have to be passive and in this state of fear. But whatever our giant is today, because of the Christ in us, the hope of glory. We can face it. Endure it. If it's his will, conquer it for his glory. Bow to him. Trust him. Behold him. He is the king. Let's pray. And God, if there's anyone here today who does not know what it means to have their life hidden with you, or maybe they don't even know you, Jesus, maybe they're still operating on their own strength, and maybe they think you're the kind of God that you always have to appease and you have to perform for and you have to be good enough for. God, I just pray that they, the eyes of their heart would see the gospel, the good news that you're a humble king and that you meet us where we are and that in your death we have life and you raise us up into your life. May we trust you for that. And if there's anyone hurting today who feels utterly helpless with their circumstances or situation in life, you've also created us to be one body, one church, to stand with each other. And I just pray, God. In fact, I'm going to stop right there. Is there anyone today who just, you feel overwhelmed by a circumstance, a situation, a situation? There, there, there's a giant in your life. I'm just going to invite you to stand. Just so we can know who you are. So you can go public with your need. So we can stand with you. No more than that. Anyone? Yeah. You are a champion. Our privilege to stand with you. Yeah. Your church, your family. We weep with those who weep, we rejoice with those who rejoice. We stand with those who feel weak. And God, I want to pray for them right now, those who are standing right now. God, I don't know what their giants are, but right now I pray that you would give them everything that they need in you, Christ. The Christ in them, the hope of glory. And God, that we, as a church, would be that Christ to them. And for all of us, God, that whether we have one stone or, 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 or a million stones, God, whatever you've given us, however you've made us to be, that we'd be content, but we'd use all of it, we'd throw it for you and your kingdom. That we would not be in a state of fear. In Jesus' name. Man, that's all stand.